What's up, everybody, and welcome to the first ever episode of OT Takes, Overtime Takes, whatever you want to call it. I'm your host, Jonathan Smith. Super duper excited for today's show. We've got a really good lineup going today. We're talking about the draft. One team in, in particular, don't know really what's going on with them. There haven't been any leaks. I'm really excited to kind of see who they pick, so stick around to hear that. In addition to that, we'll be talking about The Last Dance, the new documentary coming out on the 97-98 Bulls. The first two episodes dropped on Sunday night. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Really, really good. I know I enjoyed it. I'm going to have a guest on later in the show to kind of talk about it and just kind of some of the stuff that he remembers. So stay tuned for that. And then to end the show, I have an interview with former Arkansas Razorback defensive back Kevin Richardson. Uh, He played under Sam Pittman, who's the new head coach at Arkansas now. So he gives us some insight on him. It's fantastic. You're not going to want to miss it. So for the first segment of the show, we're going to be talking about The Last Dance, just kind of my first impressions on it. As I said in the intro, you're going to hear me talk more about it later with a special guest of mine. So first thoughts, very good. I really enjoyed it. I think they do a really good job of giving really good backstory to Scottie Pippen because you just I learned so much about him that I didn't know. Didn't know that he, he was the, the number five overall pick. Didn't know that he demanded a trade. Didn't know he was underpaid. So they do a really, really good job of giving a backstory on Scottie Pippen and everything like that. The The second impression I had is they make Jack Krause look absolutely terrible. He is 100% the villain in this documentary, and he should be, because just from everything that they've shown, it looks like he didn't really care about the players, and that's where it all starts in the NBA and or any sport in general, really. If you don't have good players, then you're not going to win a championship. And he just he wanted all the credit, and he wasn't getting it because he had the best player to ever play on his team in Michael Jordan. Which brings me to my third impression that I got. So before the documentary came out, Michael Jordan was concerned that it would make him look bad, and he didn't look bad at all, in my opinion. He looked absolutely fantastic. You know, like the highlight clips that they show of him are just absolutely crazy. The soundtrack, by the way, that they pick for for these moments is. Awesome. The the old school rap music I thought was just genius. But out, outside of that, you know, Michael Jordan looks really good. He looks kind of like how we see Kobe, this dude who just wants to win it at all costs. And he's going to do anything that he can to win. You know, like if you're not going to help Michael Jordan win, then he doesn't want you. You know, that's kind of how it is. And he's very blunt, very upfront and honest. I think when they show the beginning of the 97-98 season with, when Scotty's out and you see him yelling at guys at practice and doing you know stuff like that, getting frustrated. You know when they win their first road game against the Clippers. You know he just kind of takes the ball and is like, you know what, I'm gonna go score and we're gonna go win because I'm Michael Jordan and I can do that. There was definitely a real Kobe vibe, and for me, you know that's kind of who I'm comparing him to because you know I'm 20 years old, never saw Michael Jordan play. From what I understand, Kobe's the closest thing that we've ever had to him in terms of play style and everything like that. And so just kind of seeing him and comparing him to Kobe. Is just it's cool because there are just so many similarities there, right? And the other thing that I think this documentary is doing is it's really kind of giving us a scope to compare Michael Jordan to, to LeBron James through, and they're hard to compare. You know, their styles of game and just the way that they play are really different. Uh, you can just see that, but then again, you also see like how athletic Michael Jordan was, just. The way he kind of floats in the air, it's just it's crazy. Some of the highlights that they show with the layups and obviously the dunks. But the quote 
of the of the documentary so far is definitely Roy Williams talking about Michael Jordan never turning never turning it off, which is definitely very Kobe like, right? And so it's just interesting. I'm really enjoying it. You're going to hear more of my thoughts later when I have my special guest come on. Really excited to have him on. He's older, so he was he was alive during the time. He remembers some of it. So I'm really excited to have him on. Now let's segue into our other segment. So the team that I'm talking about today for the NFL draft is the Miami Dolphins. There's so much speculation on who they're going to take with their first pick, which is the, the fifth overall pick. Some people are like, oh, they're going to take Tua. And then I'm reading on uh, Joel Klatt. Joel he is the mock draft guy for Fox Sports. He's got him taking Tristan Wirfs out of Iowa, big offensive tackle, which they definitely need offensive tackle help. Then um, Mel Kuyper, I believe, has him taking Herbert at the, at the number five spot. Uh, Todd McShay has them taking Tua. There's just so much speculation on who they're going to take. I know some people think they're going to take an offensive tackle at five and then draft Jordan Love, quarterback at the Utah State at 18. Just so many different ideas. I've seen people talk about them trading up for the number one spot and taking Joe Burrow. Just so many different options for the Dolphins. And let's be honest here. Nobody has a clue as to who they're as to who the Miami Dolphins are going to draft. Not a not a single clue, because you know the, no leaks, which I think is a great sign. That's you know most great organizations don't have leaks, and the Miami Dolphins don't have leaks, which I think is really good for Dolphins fans. Just being on Twitter and seeing you know the Dolphins fans and just kind of how they feel, they've got to take a quarterback somewhere in this draft, or especially in the first round. They, they have three first round picks, so if they don't take a quarterback in the first round, I think Miami Dolphin fans are going to be really upset. For me, personally, if I'm Miami, uh, it, I'm taking one of two guys. I'm either going to take Tua at number five, which is, if I was the GM, that's exactly who I'd take because I think he's going to be the best quarterback coming out in this draft class. He's so good. He's definitely the most talented. I know that there's concerns with injury. I was actually reading, uh, Mel Kuyper reported that some teams actually like Justin Herbert more than Tua because of the injuries. I think they're overreacting. Like It's football. Guys get hurt. I understand, you know, Tua's... Hip injury is a little bit more serious, but watch him at his pro day. He moved just fine. He looked really good. So I'm, I'm taking two if I'm Miami. But if I'm not taking two at five, I'm taking Jordan Love later on in the draft. He looks so good. Just the, He's very raw, has so much talent, big arm, not super accurate, but, I mean, he's still, like, he's, he's going to get there. You, you can tell he's definitely got the potential to be a really good NFL quarterback. And, you know, if you're Miami, I don't think there's any harm in playing Ryan Fitzpatrick as the starting quarterback for another year and giving Jordan Love a year to kind of develop and figure things out, kind of like Kansas City did with Patrick Mahomes and Alex Smith, even though I'm not saying I don't think Jordan Love's going to be Patrick Mahomes. That'd be That's too high of a standard for a rookie. So that's if I'm Miami, that's what I'm doing. And then with their other picks, you have to address the offensive line because that was that was their biggest thing, you know, this last year. And they really need, need to improve on that. With Brian Flores as their head coach, they're going to draft defensive guys just because he's a defensive-minded head coach, which is okay, even though they did sign three different defensive players this offseason. But at the same time, they need help everywhere. So I think I'm really excited for their draft just to kind of see how they do. They're definitely taking a... Las Vegas Raiders approach to this, trying to rebuild through the draft, trading for picks, doing different things like that. 
So I'm really, really excited to kind of see how they attack this draft, who they draft, where they draft them, if they trade up, if they trade down to acquire more picks. It's going to be really interesting, really fun. Cannot wait for the draft. So the plan is to hopefully release a full episode focusing solely on the draft, and we'll work through different players and everything like that. So make sure you, you know you subscribe, follow, do whatever, so that when that comes out, you guys can see that. So now I have a very special guest with me. So I brought on my dad, and I'm sure you guys are curious to know, like, why'd you bring on your dad? Is your dad a sports expert? No, he is not. But he did grow up, and he was alive during the 97-98 season. You remember some of it, so I just thought it'd be good to have an older person's perspective kind of on the documentary, The Last Dance. So, Dad, just kind of give us your, what's your first kind of initial impression of the documentary? Yeah, I thought overall it was, it was good. I thought they did a good job not just covering that final you know, year in terms of the sixth championship and kind of their run to it, uh, but also how they incorporated flashbacks. Uh, I was real curious how they were going to kind of weave those two things together. So I thought overall it was good. There was a good balance between that current team, but I think most people are interested in, in Michael Jordan. And, and so I thought it was good how they talked about his upbringing and different challenges he faced and, and just his own personality and dealing with some of those things. I thought that the stuff on Scottie Pippen was really good too. I think that, I know that I learned a lot about Scottie Pippen. So what all did you know about Scottie Pippen kind of before the doc? Like, did you know he was number, number five overall pick? Do you remember him asking for the trade? Kind of what all from that do you remember? Yeah, so, of course, being from Arkansas, um, you know, the whole story about UCA and how he grew and all that stuff, I, I was familiar with all that. Uh, the rest of the world may not have been. I, I thought that, you know, kind of before I answer your question, I, one of the things I enjoyed most that Michael Jordan said was, look, you can't mention Michael Jordan without Scottie Pippen. Uh, which I think gives him, you know, a lot of props that he, you know, rightfully deserves. Uh, of course, that was, you know, over 20 years ago. So I, 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 I'd forgotten that Pippen didn't play at the beginning of the year. Uh, just somehow kind of, kind of missed all of that. Uh, I forgot about, about the injury. You know, it kind of shows you in hindsight, you know, they always say no one remembers who comes in second. I do because I was for the Jazz that year. Um, but uh, um, even though I, I was for the Bulls too, I mean, I was fine either way, but, um, you know, you, you typically just remember the championship. You, you forget about all the trials a team has to go through to get there. So I, I've forgotten about that. But I'm glad they did a whole piece on him. I think that was that was really good and he deserved it. Definitely. So watching him and having not grown up seeing him play, he really reminded me a lot of watching Kobe Bryant. So he's definitely – because Kobe Bryant is definitely my generation, Michael Jordan, I think. So just kind of watching him, because you saw him both live, is that a fair comp? Look, I'm of the opinion that Jordan's the GOAT, okay? So I'm obviously going to be really biased with that. Now, that's not taking anything away from Kobe Bryant. I mean, I think he's one of the best players that, that's ever played. And I think that when you really get into deep discussions about the GOAT, I mean, you're splitting hairs. I mean, you know, these guys are all incredible, okay? So, I mean, we're not saying a guy's not very good. Uh, I think there are some real comparisons watching them play. Um, you know, I, I think that Jordan maybe, in, in my opinion, would have, is more gifted athletically. I mean, as we were watching, even you said it. It's yeah. like his ability to hang in the air. You know, I think you looked at me one time and said, I've never seen LeBron do that. And that's not a knock against LeBron. I mean, I think it's just a praise for Jordan and his ability. It's like he would get in the air and, like, he just stayed there. That's why it's called Air Jordan. I mean, and no one had seen that before and, and maybe even since. Uh, and so I think athletically he was was gifted more. I think that Jordan and, and Kobe off, you know, the camera – 
they were hard workers. I mean, they worked at it and they put in a lot of work. And I think in that regard, they're definitely both very similar. Yeah, definitely. Kind of seeing the way that Michael Jordan called out his teammates while Scottie Pippen was out definitely reminded me of Kobe Bryant. And the quote from Roy Williams on Michael Jordan reminded me of Kobe Bryant, too. Just the whole it's, – it's the best quote so far, in my opinion, about Jordan, you know, never never being able to really turn it off. And he's the only player who ever really could. And so that, that definitely reminded me a lot of Kobe Bryant. But something else that I've kind of realized is that – you, know, you hear these older guys talk about how it's really hard to compare LeBron James and Michael Jordan because their styles of players are so different. And you definitely saw that, I think. And just they do things so differently that I've definitely realized how hard it is to compare the two. But we have to compare the two because it's 2020, and that's what we do in sports. We compare everybody. Sure. And so what do you think? I definitely think that it gives younger fans an opportunity to see what Michael Jordan was like. And so what do you kind of think about – I guess this LeBron James and Michael Jordan debate kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I agree that they play different positions. They have different body types, size. So it's, it is difficult to compare in terms of just raw ability on, on the court. Uh, and I know we have to do that because that's what we like to do in sports. We like to talk about, you know, these kinds of things. Um, you know, I, first of all, you know, as we watched, of course, you've watched LeBron James play growing up. So you've seen a lot of him. And I know you've watched a lot of highlights of Jordan, but, as we watched it, I think there were highlights they were showing of Jordan that you'd never seen before. Yeah, there weren't. And and so, you know, you looked at me at one point and said, I've never seen LeBron do that. And, again, not a knock against LeBron because he's obviously an incredible basketball player. But, you know, Jordan's ability so, – so for me, looking at the two and trying to compare, um, I think some people, when they compare athletes, they look just at championships – and that's their gauge to determine who's the best of all time. And I think that's definitely an equivalent. But, you know, if you were to say that, then you have to say Robert Ory is one of the best ever because of how many championships he's won. Um, so I think there's more to that. And I think what separates LeBron and Jordan uh, is Jordan's drive to win. I mean, you, you can, in all the other things I've ever seen or heard about Jordan, he wanted to compete at everything. You know, if that was playing cards, if it was playing golf, you know, whatever it was, he wanted to win and to be the best. And that competitive drive is what has separated him from, from everybody else. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely one of the things that you pick up on with Michael Jordan, especially in this doc. Like, you know, he basically at one point he's like, look, if you're not going to help me win, then leave. You know, and that's definitely different from LeBron. I definitely feel like you know, over LeBron's career, he's focused on a lot of other things, which isn't bad. You know, he's done a really good job giving the players a voice in the NBA because you can see like when Michael Jordan in this documentary, like the GM and the owner had all the power, you know, like not giving, you know, uh, Scottie Pippen a raise or anything like that. And so I props to LeBron for doing that, but back to the, the doc, actually, oh no, one more thing, but, but before the doc, that I just want to say, so I feel like in 2020, just kind of this era that we live in, we love, we love the idea of potential. Right. Like we draft number one overall players based off of not how good they are in the moment, but potential. And I think a lot of the reason why we think Le some people think LeBron is the GOAT is because coming into the league, he had so much potential and he definitely improved as a player. But I don't think he ever really reached it. I feel like he developed his jump shot a little bit too late in his career to have really been lethal. And so just kind of through the prime of his career, he, I don't think he was as skilled as Michael Jordan was. So what do you kind of think about that before we get back to the doc? Yeah, so I think part of it is is basketball has changed. Um, you know, with with the three point line. I mean, when you watch 
some of the videos of, of Jordan early on, you know, there's not a three-point line. So because of that, uh, players had different skill sets. <clears throat> and so, you know, they had to have a mid-range game. Um, you know, you look at some of the best centers of all time, you know, most of them, you, you couldn't dunk a basketball when, when they played growing up. And so because of that, they had to develop other ways of scoring and skills around the rim, you know, the hook shot and all that kind of stuff like that. Um, whereas you look in the era now, there's, you know, the whole idea of, you know, Dr. J kind of, I think, initiated that whole flashy, you know, excitement around, you know, watching this dunk. And, and I think that is a detriment maybe to some players today. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't practice shooting. You know, I would lower the goal and dunk it because that was the fun <laughs> thing to do. Uh, and so I think for Jordan, one of the things that probably helped him in terms of his skill set is the era that he grew up in. You had to develop all of those in terms of passing and dribbling and, and shooting from different points on the floor. Um, and, and not saying the three-point line is, is a bad thing, uh, but when you take a guy like LeBron, you know, growing up, look, he was always the biggest guy on the court, strongest guy on the court, fastest guy on the court. So for him, he could just, you know, get to the rim and score. And so that may have worked against him in some regard, that he didn't have to develop those other parts of his game that may have helped him, you know, in the long run. Definitely. So something that so before the, the, the documentary came out, Michael Jordan came out and said he was nervous about the doc because he felt like it was going to make him look bad. And I think I understand what he was saying because – you definitely see in the first two episodes how rough he was on his teammates. I think that's what he was implying. But I think he looked really good. I don't think that he would have released the doc if he didn't look really good. So what do you kind of think about him making that quote before? Well, I mean, I think that every national figure, whether they're an athlete or some other kind of celebrity, okay, you know, they have a certain reputation. And when you, you look at Jordan, people look at him through a certain lens. And look, nobody's perfect. And when you pull away that lens and you get a behind-the-scenes look, you get to see kind of the more raw, core person. And that's true of everybody. I mean, Jordan or anybody else. And so for him, you know, there might have been a concern that people were going to see a little bit more of that rough around the edges, um, the way he treated his teammates, Um you know, I'd never really heard those parts about him before, uh, but I've seen other documentaries, you know, um, like on Christian Leitner and how his teammates kind of hated him because of how he treated him, but he did that to motivate him to win. And I think that we all know that these athletes like Kobe Bryant and, and Michael Jordan, they, they do that to their teammates, not in an attempt to diminish them, but as an attempt to raise their play. Uh, and so those parts about Jordan have never been revealed before. I mean, I don't think he suppressed it in some way. Um, so maybe there was some concern there, but I, I didn't look at anything in the doc. I didn't feel like there was anything that that made me think that his legacy was tarnished or to look down upon him in any way. Okay. So what do you think about Jerry Krause? Like how much of ha kind of how he treated those guys was known b during that time and what all was like new information? Like, oh, I didn't realize Michael Jordan made fun of him so much. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, of course, we get a behind the scenes look. And so we're getting to see some real honest opinions about how people felt about ownership. Uh, I remember when it all went on, it, it seemed like the last three that they won. It seemed like every year I remember watching on SportsCenter and stuff, um, how there was discussion about the ownership and how they were kind of at odds with with the players. I mean, obviously, here we're getting some insight that we didn't have before. But I do remember that being, uh, you know, a real big part of the story, you know, even then. I think most people knew that it was coming to a close. So some of that was kind of new, but overall, I think that uh, even in the day, we knew there was real tension there between leadership and, and, and the players. 
Okay. Any final thoughts before we we wrap up the segment? Anything else that you know you want to say that you maybe forgot to say earlier? Well, I think that one of the things that that watching the documentary I was reminded of is that in any organization from the top down really sets the tone, and that was one of the things I really kind of took away that that it was the leadership in the organization that ultimately caused its own demise. And, and when the leadership was good and, and the players bought in with that, they had success. And that's not just true of the Bulls. I mean, you look across any kind of, of athletic team professionally, and I know we talked about this before, you know, the Yankees have been good so long because they had great leadership, you know, in their organization. Uh, and not that I'm a Yankees fan, but you have to acknowledge that. And so uh, I think that there that, that we, we really see that, that from the top down really sets the tone for everything. And not just with the leadership, but, you know, as we talked before about Jordan, getting on his teammates, even within the team from the top down. I think that's why people were willing to follow him. They knew he was the best player, but he was also the hardest worker. He set that tone, and people were willing to follow that. And so a lot of their success, I mean, it takes a whole team, but was really his drive and motivation. So I, that's one of the things I really took away from the documentary was just that reminder that if you got great leadership at the top, it's going to really you know contribute to your success. Definitely. Last thing I want to say before we end the segment. So if you notice, when they interview Patrick Ewing, He's, you know, the head coach of the Georgetown Hoyas, right? So if you look at him, so Michael Jordan beat him over and over and over again in his NBA career, beat him, you know, in, in the national championship game in 1982. And if you look at his shirt, they're sponsored by Michael Jordan. And I think that that perfectly sums up, you know, Michael Jordan's career and just like, hey, you know, he, he crushed people all the time and yet they still respect him enough to be like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll wear your logo on my, on my shirt so i just think i just thought that was kind of funny so thank you dad for for coming on we're yeah. gonna see you next week again right to talk sure. about episodes three and four yeah my pleasure it's fun i enjoyed it thanks for having me cool thank, thanks for coming on i just want to thank everybody for tuning in today um really enjoyed it had a great time talking with my dad and just covering different things kind of in the sports world really looking forward to the next episode I'm going to leave you all with this interview that I did with Kevin Richardson uh, probably about a week ago, maybe a little bit more. Fantastic. Especially, you know, if you're a fan of SEC football or just football in general, he, he's great. Uh, he talks about a lot of interesting stuff. He talks about playing under the Brett Bielema staff at Arkansas. He talks about playing under Chad Morris at Arkansas. Just covers a lot of different interesting things. He talks about his time in the Canadian Football League. He's now a coach, so he's kind of, he talks about how they're kind of dealing with the whole COVID-19 situation. Really good, really interesting. Highly recommend that you guys tune in and, and stay here and, and listen to it. It's, it's awesome. So that's it from me. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Everybody, so right now on the phone with me, we have Kevin Richardson, former defensive back at the University of Arkansas, who's now coaching. Go ahead and say, what's up, man? What's up, man? How you doing? Hey, thank you for, once again for for coming on with us, man. So, what all you've been doing throughout, you know, the quarantine to to kind of help time pass? You know, right now, spending a lot of time recruiting over the phone. You know, we can't be in contact with a lot of the high schools, and just trying to maintain that process and keep our recruiting class building while we have the time. Kind of just spending time with family as well. You know, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with them because I spent the last couple years playing football. And, yeah. You know, I got you. My first time having some free time to myself. I got you. That's 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 nice though to have, to have some free time every now and then though. Oh yeah, it's 
it, it's so much free time though. I don't even know what to do with myself now though. Like it's getting to a point where I get bored with sitting around now. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Totally feel that, man. I, luckily, I, I was able to go out and find a little job. But before that, you know, just sitting around doing nothing definitely sucks. So yeah. So before I called you, I was doing a segment looking at the NFL teams over like the past decade. I don't know if you saw us on Twitter or not, but so for the for the 2010s, the two quarterbacks that they had were Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. And I I saw some some pushback on Twitter saying that Drew Brees should have been selected over Aaron Rodgers. And I just I. Don't really agree with that. I definitely feel like Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady were the two best quarterbacks of these of the past ten years. Because honestly, before you know Patrick Mahomes, if you ask people who's the best quarterback in the league, you would have heard Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. So, what, what do you think about them selecting Aaron Rodgers over Drew Brees? I mean, it's it's competitive league. You can throw a lot of names in there, a quarterback that you can possibly consider. I mean, you can also consider Russell Wilson. In, in my opinion, about that. But, I mean, you know, they, they've all dealt with injury and Aaron Rodgers, you know, just coming back from injury a little bit quicker than Drew Brees did. And, you know, I feel like just, just time passing by Aaron Rodgers has had success, you know, with just in big-time games. Drew Brees has been consistent throughout his entire career, honestly. You don't break records, NFL records, you know, just being average. So, I mean, I could see both sides of the argument, but – you know, if you want to throw names in there, you could also throw names like Russell Wilson in there because he's been pretty good, you know, in his tenure up there in Seattle. Definitely. I love, love Wilson. He's definitely one of my favorite quarterbacks in the league to watch. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's awesome. So let's go ahead and hop into these these questions about you and kind of your time at Arkansas and, and, wh- and where you're at now. So for those who don't know, you, you got to Arkansas and you were a walk-on. So were you a preferred walk-on or did you have to actually go – to the tryout that that they have after the school year starts? No, I was a preferred walk-on just throughout the recruiting process. I went up to camps my junior and senior year up to Arkansas and kind of got in contact with Petrino, Paul Petrino. Mm-hmm. He was the offensive coordinator at the time while Bobby Petrino was there. and Got in contact with Chris Hauser, all those guys who were a part of that staff. Yeah. They kind of contacted me, with, you know, kept – contact with me throughout the whole process and then of course everybody knows the Bobby Petrino situation once that happened I kind of lost contact with that entire staff because once he was gone they took pretty much you know how that happens you know they pretty much wipe the whole staff out yeah and coach Lunny came through Jacksonville High School and said that man hey I can't promise you we can give you a scholarship right now but we'd love to have you come walk on went up on an unofficial visit during spring and committed to be a walk-on then, just went went about it that way and walked on and ended up enrolling in the fall of 13, but I started fall camp in August. Okay. So what what other places did, did you have offers from? Man, to be honest, I had two big offers. It was really just Arkansas Tech and Harding University. Okay. I really didn't. It was really hard a hard decision in the first place because, I mean, Harden was a pretty expensive scholarship that they gave me. It was a full ride, same thing with Arkansas Tech, but oh, they wow. both came pretty late. Okay. After the fact that Arkansas had gave me a preferred walk-on opportunity, you know, of course, growing up an Arkansas kid, you don't want to turn that down over some scholarships that came late after you got that offer. Yeah. Um, 
especially when I felt like that I was one of the better players in the state and I was overlooked and I felt like I could go up there and prove what I was capable of doing. Okay. That's that's awesome. So who was your who was your position coach when you got to Arkansas? You know, I originally went there as a receiver. It was Michael Smith, but he called me that week right before fall camp and was saying, Hey man, if you want to get on that field right away, he said, I'm not going to steer you in the wrong direction, but if you want to get on the field, your best bet. I mean, we watched your tape. Coach B evaluated you. You can play both sides, but we're looking at you as a DB. And it ended up being Taver Johnson, who's now an assistant DB's coach with the Raiders. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's awesome. So, uh, was it an easy decision for you to switch and play defense, or or did you have to take some time to really think about, do I really, you know, want to want to do this, or or, or or rather play offense? You know, it's crazy. I had a whole. I had an interview with Ray Benton from Arkansas for the the Jacksonville leader. Okay. And I was kind of explaining to him that, man, if I had to go to Arkansas and play safety, I would not go do it. But, you know, just time passing by, I just was like, man, you know, this is an opportunity you probably won't ever see again. Yeah. Because Harden also wanted me to come play safety, and Arkansas Tech just wanted me to come play. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I was just – it came down to it. I said, man, this is a dream of yours to go play here. Like, whatever they need you to do to get on the field, you better do it if you're trying to get there and show what you're capable of doing. And ended up ultimately making that decision and working out for the best. Yeah, definitely. Uh, obviously, that, that was a was a great choice that, that you made. So what led to you kind of getting the nod in, in to, to eventually st- start some games and, and get a solid amount of playing time? Did the guys get hurt, or did you just show up and, and ball out every day at practice? Man, it's a process, and most people don't, they underestimate that process and what you go through to actually get on the field, not not even just as a walk-on. You can come in as a scholarship player, but, you know, you got to come in with a chip on your shoulder, especially as a walk-on, because you don't have that same opportunity. You know, you're not somebody that coaches rely on, like the scholarship kids who they're invested in. So I went out and practiced every day and did everything I was supposed to do, went 100%. In that red shirt year, I just tried to go out and develop my body be able to play as, as at the highest level as I possibly could, especially going against those guys like Jonathan Williams and Alex Collins and Hunter Henry and practice every day on the scout team. It kind of just prepared me to go out and play at the SEC level because that's what those kind of guys that I played against were. And, you know, as time passed by, you know, I developed a little bit bigger size and went out and did what I needed to do in special teams. And that's kind of where I made my debut. I got my first start against UAB on special teams. I got my first tackle and just kind of went through there. And they kind of saw my production on special teams and was like, man, hey, it's an athletic kid. We should probably try to get my opportunity to play. And eventually ended up working my way into playing in 2014 at Nickel. And kind of went from there and ended up being a starter late in the 2015 season. So playing scout team against guys like Hunter Henry, you know, saying that when you went there, you were playing safety. So I'm assuming you, you had to cover him, cover him sometimes. Then in practice, how was how was that? It was. I mean, it's a task. He's one of the <laughs> best tight ends, not just at the college level, but I mean, you see where he is now. He's a franchise player for an uh, NFL program, and it's, it's not it's not you know overlooked at all he's one of the best players to come through Arkansas yeah. ever and you know it was difficult because I played against him in high school I already knew what type of a player he was then and just to see him develop and move from there to there 
yeah, it was it was a task. It was always gonna be a task. I bet, yeah. But it's, I'm sure that's part of the enjoyment, though, right? Is getting to play with guys like that, right? Yeah, I mean, you definitely definitely get a a brotherhood experience with some guys who go on and go to the NFL and be some big time names like Jonathan Williams and Alex yeah. Collins and Trey Flowers and Chris Smith, all of those types of guys. Greenlaw as well, play, playing in the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, yeah, Dre too. Yeah. So when you when you made your your, your first career ta- career tackle against UAB, like t- take us through like the moment, the feeling that you had, because I'm sure like. You know, you're talking about all the hard work you did during your redshirt year. I'm sure that just the feeling of accomplishment you had was was pretty crazy. Oh man, it was unbelievable. I I, I got a picture that I posted on my my last day as a Razorback in 2018 when we lost to Mizzou. I was that was one of the, the first pictures I went back to to post like as my farewell, you know, Razorback post. Yeah. Um, just because like it was a nostalgic moment, especially to be able to go out and experience, you know, just going out in front of 70,000 people in a crowded stadium and you go make a tackle and they say your name over the speaker and you're like, man, that's me. Like this, like they said my name over the speaker. Like I actually made a tackle in a college football game. Like it was just a nostalgic feeling like just to see it. I could replay every play that I've ever made, but that's one that I'll never forget. My first play of college football. I bet. That's awesome. So, who was the toughest receiver that you've ever had to cover? Because I think when people think of the SEC, your first immediate thought goes to the defensive side of the ball and just how great teams in that conference are defensively. But there's some real athletes who come through there, too, who play wide receiver. You know, just look at Alabama this last year with their, you know, they have four great wideouts that are all going to be drafted really high. Uh, Julio Jones c- coming through, Amari Cooper. Arkansas has had some, some great receivers in the past. So, for you, who was the toughest guy that, that you had to cover? Honestly, man, I, I would say one of those guys that you just mentioned from Alabama, Jerry Judy, was probably one of the toughest receivers I've ever had to guard. I mean, he's at that level for a reason. He's going to be probably the first receiver taken off the board. A.J. Brown was a pretty difficult guy. I mean, he's – Yeah, he's big. He's, he's just yeah, a big guy, yeah. yeah he's, he's a shifty big guy, but I honestly would say Jerry Judy is probably the best person I've seen in person played against man a man any type of situation like he's just crafty he's a crafty receiver yeah that's that's good so what was it like playing for the 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 brent bielema staff so were they were they really hard on y'all or were they kind of more relaxed kind of let y'all have some freedom what was it like kind of playing for for that staff man that was i mean i'm, I'm not going to shame anybody but that was my favorite staff you know i played for morris and them and you know i don't have any knocks towards any of them but man like just to be honest like, they just held us to a higher standard, like, and they knew that we wanted to go out there and play. Like, it wasn't a – everybody wants to forget about the 14 and 15 season where we actually went to bowl games and won bowl games. And yeah. Actually beat, you know, some some great teams that and, year. And played, and, and played teams like Alabama really close. That was – Yeah. That's one of and the things – 14 with the, and 15. Yeah. Most, most people didn't realize that, and they just want to forget that because yeah. of, you know, what Brett Bielema had, you know, his – 16 and 17 year yeah i mean that was just my favorite staff they were real genuine guys coach b like this this is how genuine they were like man i could i could call coach b call coach rose call rob smith call any of those guys just because i had that type of relationship with that staff man i'm not saying i can't do the same thing with coach morris but i didn't build that type of relationship with them that i did with coach b so his staff so would you say that the bielema staff was 
was tougher on y'all, and, and that's why you enjoyed them more because you just felt like yeah. like they expected yeah, they more out of y'all. To, they held us to a higher standard um, compared to Morris, you know, who kind of did it for the media. He kind of, I mean, that was his first time at a Power Five program, you know, as a head coach. I mean, I don't, I, I feel like he bit off a little bit more than he could chew. Yeah, coming from SMU, where you know they weren't the best team in their conference there, to come to Arkansas, where. You know, this is a professional team in the state. You're going to have all the eyes on you from every angle, yeah. whether it's the media, whether it's from, you know, just the government. Anything in the state of Arkansas revolves around Arkansas football. I mean, I just feel like he bit off a little bit more than he could chew coming in, talking a big game, and didn't back it up and didn't hold us to a standard. He kind of just did it for the media instead of pushing his players. Because yeah. I feel like we didn't – you can look at just the, the player development-wise – from you know what was he there from 18 to 19 like, yeah he was only there for two years yeah you didn't see much development from players who came in and were highly touted players like Traylon Burks yeah or or KJ Jefferson those guys who could come in and play and contribute but you know you didn't see like Nick Starkle came from Texas A&M was one of the better players in the conference and he got to Arkansas but just like what happened yeah same thing with same thing with um so the quarterback's name I can't remember the uh name. Hicks? Yeah, Ben Hicks. Yeah. Same thing with him. He came in and was, you know, he was one of the record holders at SMU for, you know, a lot of stuff, but he came to Arkansas and what happened? Yeah, like he team, You know, like teams develop whenever you get a new coach. You'll see things develop. You'll you'll be able to point things out like, hey, this is where they developed whenever this coach got there. But it's kind of hard to point that out with Coach Morris and his staff. Okay. So Sam Pittman was on that staff, and – there's a lot of energy around Sam Pittman. I know everybody I talk to is really excited for him to be the new head coach. So I know yeah. you know he he did the offensive lineman, so you probably weren't around him as much. But that from I what was you around him, you said what? I was around him quite a bit because over there on the scout team, you got to think if when he was first there, when he was there from 13 to 15, that was my yeah, that was my years that I was just getting. 15 was probably my first year like not having to deal with him because. He, that at that time I was moving towards playing on defense, but I was on the scout team. That's right. The yeah. entire time dealing with him, dealing with Enos, dealing with Taney, dealing with those guys. Okay, so tell us a little bit about his style because in his press conferences he seems like he's very kind of laid back, relaxed hey, kind of guy. Is that is that how he is like during practices and games? No, practice and games is another level. Like it's just he knows how to bring that out of you. As far as like. Pushing wise, like he's he's super laid back, he's relaxed, he's gonna he's gonna make sure guys are comfortable being in a home where they can come in. Like he, if you you would want to invite him into your home for an in home visit, like that's somebody that you want to talk to and get to develop a relationship with. Like there's guys from the defensive side of the ball. Think about this: one of the starting corners on our on our team in 2013, 2014, one of the starting corners would go in, in Coach Pittman's office and talk to him about life. Like, he wasn't, he didn't recruit him. He wow. wasn't his position coach, but he would just go in there and talk to him. Like, he, he's an open-door policy type of guy. Like, he gets builds relationships with every person on the team. Like, not just, like, I can go up right now. Like, I, he follows me on Twitter. I can go up in his office and just shoot, you know, shoot the conversation with him, just have a have a little, you know, catch-up session, and he'll be okay with just sitting down and talking to me about anything. You know, he he, coached, well, he recruited Frank right now, but Frank never got to play for him. Frank never played for Coach Pittman. Really? Well, no, he played for him in, yeah, he played for him in 15. He played for him in 15, but 
Frank invited Coach Pittman to his draft party. Oh wow! In, in Minnesota, while he was the <laughs> Georgia O line coach, that's, that's the type of relationship people like he builds with people. That's awesome. That's that's great to hear because from what you've kind of said about Morris, it doesn't sound like it's it was like that with any of the assistant coaches or even Morris himself. So that's that's great to hear. They were more salesmen. Coach Coach Pittman is going to be a genuine guy who's going to legit be about everything that he's saying to you. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, of all of the memories that you have, you know, playing football at Arkansas, what is what is your favorite one? The one that that sticks out to you more than any other one? Man, it's a lot of them. See, I I'm kind of torn between my first start against Ole Miss and getting Defensive Player of the Week and special like Special Teams Player of the Week. Yeah. That when we beat LSU and their fans rushed the field, man, that was a. It's between that scoring a touchdown against Ole Miss, the Hunter Henry heave against Ole Miss, catching a pick against Auburn, catching a pick against Jalen Hurts, his first interception the whole season. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of them, but I'd probably say – I'm about to say the LSU game, man. That was just crazy. It was our first yeah. SEC win. You know, it was 17 degrees outside, November 17th. It was 17-0. to zero. Like, man, it was just – it felt like it was just supposed to happen that day and, and that way that it happened. And the fans rushed the field. I got to see my older brother on the field. I like we stood up and held the boot in front of a a packed stadium of people on the on the field with us. Like we almost were getting carried off of the field, like to get back to the locker room. Somebody stole my helmet. Like <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. That was probably my favorite memory. That's that's insane. That sounds I I I I will never forget that game because I, I remember sitting at home watching that game with with my family, and I remember going into it. My dad was not super optimistic, and I'll just th- you're right, man. Because like there was just this feeling, even leading up to the game, sitting at home it was like like we're gonna play them tough, you like, know? We're gonna win this game. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, Coach Coach B could sell that. He would tell you, "Hey, man, like we're gonna go, we're gonna go kick these guys' ass. Like we're gonna go out here and handle business." And he could say that against Bama. He would say that against LSU. He said it against Auburn, against those teams when they were those like some of the top teams in the country. Dak Prescott and them came into into Fayetteville. We went down to to Stark Starkville while Dak Prescott and them was the number one team in the country. Yeah, and Coach B motivated us, a team who you know was just getting our head like our head right on straight, and we went in there and almost beat the number one team in the country several times with Alabama coming yeah. into town or going down to Starkville. Like, he just kind of put that in us that we can go down there and beat anybody. And he kind of did that with LSU. And when you kind of put that in your players, it makes it a little easier to go forward and play a football game rather than, hey, let's go put our best foot forward and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Like, And something that really – I remember that year really well because I remember every game you could tell we got better week to week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talking about Chad Morris, you know, you, you didn't see that with his teams. You know, and that's yeah, that's that's crazy. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you had a short stint in the in the CFL. Kind of tell me about right. that experience because I'm sure it's it's not like the the you know the the NFL experience at all. Oh man, no, nothing like it at all. It's it's a completely different game. It's fun. I'm not gonna say it's not fun. I feel like it's more designed for offensive players. Okay, um, but. It's still, you know, a 
a football professional football league where you can go out and excel and make your way to the NFL or continue to thrive there if that's what you choose to do. But it's definitely something to go experience. You know, if people, you know, want to go experience the CFL, I would encourage it. It's, you know, I went there and had a great game. My first career game, I caught a pick and recovered a fumble to win the game. So, I mean. There you go. It was fun. While it lasted, it just, you know, things don't always work out in your favor. And I kind of learned that, you know, going through the walk-on process, that's why I wasn't so, you know, upset about it or, you know, kind of, I need to, I need to do this. I need to chase football. I'm not, I wasn't really too upset about it because it was a, it was a struggle for me to get to play college football where I wanted to play it at anyways. And mm-hmm. I got to experience that. That was my dream was to go play college football at Arkansas and, and have success doing it. And I did it. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't such a stretch to go chase football after that, especially dealing with all the injuries I dealt with. Yeah. So, I mean, so I ha- it wasn't too. So, how long were you in the CFL for? Like, how, how many games did you play? We, we, we played the preseason games. I was there for the first week of uh otas and then i got cut gotcha gotcha okay so how big of a talent gap was there between the cfl and and the sec man do you the scouts from the nfl called the 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 sec the baby nfl oh wow like scouts will come in there and this is the baby nfl is where SEC is called. So, I mean, to be able to go up there and play in Canada, that's why I had success because I was prepared. I went up to Canada, and it was almost like, I'm not going to say like a high school game, but a glorified, like, a glorified Texas high high school football game, like, just to go out there and compete. Like, I was like, man, I'll prepare for this. It's not too hard at all. I mean, there's going to be professional athletes, but you got guys coming from the NFL going and playing there, trying to work their way back to the NFL, but I mean, it's it's competitive for sure. I'm not going to say it's super easy, but I was just prepared for it because the SEC is, like I said, the baby NFL. I was prepared yeah. for anything that I was going to go play in. Okay, yeah that 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 makes that makes a lot of sense. So, how into football are Canadians? Because you know, like they love hockey, and you know in Toronto they love basketball. So how 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 much into into football are they? Oh man, they love football. Hamilton Tiger Cats, where I was, you know, they have a big pride on their football program there. I mean, I'm it's really just all over Canada to be honest. Like they're they're big on it just like they are hockey or like you said Toronto and basketball cuz um I was in Toronto at the time when the Warriors, the Warriors and the Raptors were in the finals. Wow. So, yeah, so I mean, it's just they they love it just like they love anything else. Like they came out and supported us the same week of a game of a finals game and we were in a where were we at? We were actually in camp at the time, and they were going through it. We were staying up late watching it, and fans came out the next day and were at the game just like they were at the, the uh, Raptors game. Wow. It's, it's just as big, to be honest. So it's you definitely say it's big enough that if the NFL wanted to expand or a team wanted to move, they can move to Toronto and, and be fine. Yeah, honestly, I think that would be easy. Okay, that's that's interesting because I just – you don't really hear much about the CFL down here here in America, and it's really interesting. So, you said that that some of the rules are different, and you feel like it favors offensive players. Like how how so? Hey man, like when a receiver can start ten yards back and run full speed at us, and we're supposed to be pressing them oh, at the line of scrimmage, like that's that's a disadvantage for a defensive back. Yeah, no, easy, no doubt. Okay, and they can they can motion all over the field. There's like there's. 
just the types of motions that you can do, the things that you can't do with defensive players, like the pass interference has come a little easier in in Canada than it does in in um, American football. Just like just in general, like the difference is like kids from college, kids um, in Canada who go to college dream of going to the to the CFL, like how we dream of going to the NFL. Wow! And they they actually love to go out there and play, and you know some because they get support from their homes. Canada's a big country. So, I mean, it's only nine teams, I think it is. Oh, so you wow. play each You play each team in your conference twice, and I think you get one crossover game. So the season's pretty long, but, I mean, it's it goes by pretty quick because you can sometimes play two games in one week. Oh, wow. That, that, that sounds terrible. You know, because you hear these NFL guys talk about, like, recovery time and – how they, yeah, they love yeah. their bye week. I couldn't imagine having to play two games in one week. Just talking to some of the veteran guys in the CFL while I was there, they all talk about that too. Like, man, you got to take care of your body like no other. Like, I know you heard it through college. I mean, especially coming from the SEC, but this is another level. You can play two games in a week. That sounds – oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. It did. It sounded awful. So, um, so you're – you are you are a coach now at Mid American Nazarene, which is in Kansas City, Kansas. Mm-hmm. How Olathe, did, Kansas. You said what? Sorry. Olathe, Kansas. Olathe, Kansas. So, mm-hmm. how did you end up landing that job? And was it like, was it pretty quick after you got cut from the CFL, or or was there kind of some layover time before before you landed that job? I'll start with how I got it. So. I was connected to the head coach there through Paul Rose, who was my D coordinator at Arkansas. He was the one person who kind of nodded me in the direction of getting into coaching because he talked about me being one of the smartest players he ever coached. And he coached Darrell Revis. That was one of the best corners in NFL history. And he coached him and said, hey, man, you one of the smartest players I've ever coached. And he said, man, you definitely need to be a football coach. He said, just because you're understanding the football, you're, you're – um, ability to connect with people and to be able to get people to understand what you're trying to say like your leadership when I was a team captain showed him like him coach B those types of guys that influenced me to get into coaching in the first place and they all still reach out to me today just trying to make sure that I'm good and where I'm at if coach B would have got that job at Michigan State or Colorado I would have been probably there with him Um, yeah just like I can text or call either one of them any time of day, but Coach Rose uh, was the head coach of Iowa State, and Todd Sturdy, who the head coach at my school, was his offensive coordinator while he was the head coach at Iowa State. Oh, wow. So he got to where I am now at Mid-American Nazarene University. Mm-hmm. Um, so he got there with the head coach, and Coach Rose had kind of reached out to him and said, hey, I got a guy trying to get into coaching. He's probably going to be a little late coming into it, just because he's going to be playing in, in the CFL, just in case he doesn't make it, like that—that's one. Of, that's going to be his fallback. And he called me like maybe like a week and a half after that, like after I got cut, I got home and relaxed for a little bit, and kind of did some phone interviews with him and Coach B and a couple other guys, and that just ended up being my landing point. That's my starting point, and I kind of went that route because being a GA at a D one. You know, you don't get to do a lot of coaching. You sit behind the screen doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. And I want to be hands-on. I want to be able to get my own position group and work, you know, get guys going and develop players. 
and that's why I chose where I went now. And it's at the bottom. It's an NAIA football, but yeah. like I said, I want to work my way up. I'm I never shied away from I never shied away from grinding. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I walked on, so I mean, I know the hard route. And I can. It's it's not hard. It's not hard to me. I, it's just another another way to get to where you're trying to get to. Definitely, yeah. So I don't think that people really realize the talent level of these non-division one programs. So just kind of give us like, what, what is the talent level at, at your, at, at your school? Cause I know at my school, I, I go to a division two school. The talent level is crazy. Like those, those athletes, they're still freak athletes. They're still freakishly athletic and, and they can really play. So just kind of give us an idea of the, of the talent level at, at your school. Yeah. It's about the same as like you saying with a D2 school, NAIA schools pretty much compete with D2 schools and recruiting. Because you don't see a lot of people going D3 because of the fact that you don't get full scholarships and all that type of stuff. But just it's, it's just as competitive as D2. Those are the types of guys who slip through the crack because of grades or just having off-the-field issues or stepped away from football for a little bit and wanted to step back in. Like one of my teammates who I was with at Arkansas is Brandon Martin. He was the number one JUCO receiver coming out of Mississippi Gulf Coast in 2015 or 16, I believe. And he ended up, you know, stepping away from football at Arkansas because things didn't work out with him and Coach Morris. And now he ended up going to our rival school where I'm at now at Grandview. And he's a, you know, a guy. He's a, he wasn't the number one Juco receiver coming out for no reason. Yeah. And he's playing at the school that I'm about to play against in our first game. So, I mean, that's what show like you. That's what type of talent you see, like guys who slip through the cracks because of things that are off the field or because of grades. But it's the type of talent you see at that level. Definitely. So, how have your previous coaches impacted the way that you coach your players? I think the only thing that I take from some of my previous coaches is just like drills or a philosophy of some set um, around football. But you kind of have to build your philosophy around you know, the head coach that you're going to be working for or, you know, the defensive coordinator you're working for, and you kind of build your philosophy around them. I have my own coaching style just because that's the type of a leader that I was while I was a player at Arkansas. I, I hold my players to a certain standard that I held, you know, myself and my teammates to while I played football just to try to instill, like, a better mindset into them. Like, hey, we may not be at the highest level of football that y'all can play, that y'all feel like that y'all should be playing at, but I'm gonna make sure y'all feel like y'all getting coached like y'all are at that level. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So speaking of coaching and everything, was y'all spring practice cut short due to the coronavirus? Man, we didn't even have spring ball. We were actually just about to start it the next week, and we had spring break. So our spring break was that first week where they started canceling school and everything. So that Saturday, we were getting ready to send our players off for spring break. And the school announced that they were shutting it down and that we were extending our spring break until we get news otherwise of, you know, NAI canceling spring ball. And they ended up canceling it that Sunday. So, you know, we didn't even get to get into spring ball. We just did winter conditioning and spring training. And after that, we went, we getting ready to go into spring ball and never got the opportunity. So, so obviously that's not ideal at all. So what are, what are y'all doing to make sure that your players are staying in shape and that they're they're ready for what's going to be a pretty fast start when they come back in the fall. Right now, we're doing everything that we possibly can to make sure that they're being active. 
it's kind of hard because we just got a new offense and you know we're trying to do zoom meetings set up meetings to where we can do like skype or zoom just to get all the guys online so we can all get on the same page because like you said it's gonna be a pretty fast start and we can't be behind the eight ball if we're trying to move forward and win games so we're trying to do zoom meetings trying to move forward and just contact our guys make sure they're handling their online classes and we send them at-home workouts from our strength coach, just trying to make sure they're still active. But, I mean, there's not much we can do right now, but be patient. And hopefully, you know, our guys are doing what they're supposed to be doing if they want to be successful. Yeah. So I'm assuming also that you're, you're having some extra time to, to recruit or or y'all not allowed to have contact with high school recruits right now. How, how's all that kind of working? We can contact them. NAIA rules are a little different in uh, NCAA, but – we can contact them. We can talk to them. Like, there's still kids now getting offers from NCAA schools, just like we're offering kids in NAIA. It's just a matter of not being able to get those guys on campus for official visits or things like that. That's the most difficult part of it all. I mean, we just have to sell the school over the cell phone and send guys, like, virtual tour links and try to do what we can to get guys into the school because right now we can't have anybody on campus. I mean, we're not even on campus, so yeah. it's just that's a difficult task, but we're doing what we can to try to get guys coming. We're still getting commits, still getting offers out there to guys. It's just a difficult task. I mean, especially with going into my first year of coaching and experiencing it like this, I feel like it'll make it a lot easier to prepare for you know coaching down the road when I actually am available to do what I have to do, like to get kids on campus to see the schools or do in-home visits with kids. Yeah. So, did you ever host a recruit when you were when you were at Arkansas? Man, I hosted pretty much that whole football team <laughs> um, from twenty thirteen to twenty seven. Really, twenty eighteen. I was still hosting people in twenty eighteen too. They try to steer clear of like seniors and captains and all of those guys to host recruits, but I was so good at it. And I wanted guys to be, you know, I wanted our team to improve. I didn't mind hosting those kids just because, I mean, I knew that I was going to get kids there. That's what I did. I got camera curl there. I got Scooter there. I got Sosa there. Like, all of those types of guys, like, I got them there. And those guys can play, too. Yeah. Like I I wanted to develop our team. Like, that's what I didn't understand why people didn't want to do that because, I mean, hey, man, let's make our team better. Yeah. And you got to want to compete. That's a part of getting better. Yes, it is. That's – yeah, that's that's so true. So that's those are all the questions that I have for you. I just want to thank you again, you know, for coming on. I know watching you play at Arkansas was awesome. Not only because you know you're you're from the same hometown as same hometown hometown as me, but just knowing how hard you've worked, talking to some of your old high school coaches, they they praise how great of a person you are, man, and how how great of a football player you are too. So I just I, I want to thank you again for for taking the time to to come on and, and talk to me. Oh, no problem, man. Thanks for having me.